Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 156 with the Michael Yuri. We nerd out about all things Monty Python, and he is returning to Broadway as Sir Robin in the revival of Spamalot that starts previews on October 31st. He'll also be playing Prince Dauntless opposite Sutton Foster in Once Upon a Mattress in January and February. This is a delightful conversation. I really think you're going to love it. And hey, if you like this podcast, guess what? You're going to like the other podcasts that American Theatre distributes. If you go to americantheatre.org, click on the Listen tab, you will be linked to the off-script podcasts that are produced by American Theatre. The Subtext, which is a podcast that centers on playwrights hosted by Brian James Pollock. So check those out too. Please, please, please enjoy this podcast. It's it's quite lovely. And now we're going to listen to me chatting with the wonderful Michael Yuri. I am beyond thrilled to welcome America's sweetheart, Michael Yuri, to the podcast. <laughs> welcome, Michael. Hello. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So let's talk spam a lot. I'm so thrilled for this revival. So this is the second time you're visiting this, the brave, possibly in quotations, Sir Robin. (laughs) Tell (laughs) me all about what's going on, uh, your origin story, and the rehearsals just look so fun. It's so fun. We are having, it's just stupid how much fun (laughs) we're having. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard work because like this is a singing, dancing musical and it's like, as much Monty Python's Holy Grail as it is Broadway showstoppers. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of a parody, you know, it's sort of like we we take from all kinds of different musical theater um, motifs in, in, in the, the, the musical of it, but it's all in the same spirit as Monty Python. It's in the same sort of camp, um, highbrow, lowbrow, wordplay, and physical comedy uh, that that Monty Python made so famous that all, all sort of translated into musical form but at its at its heart and its soul it is it is a, a sweet hilarious friendly musical about about love and friendship and finding the spirit within you that makes you tick you know finding your grail the grail of course is a metaphor and and um, I mean, no, I'm just kidding. It's literal. Come see the show and you'll find out. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's 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 like it just encompasses everything that we love about musicals or that I love about musicals. And um, that's not to say that I don't love a, a tearjerker musical. I don't love a, a musical where, you know, everyone's dead at the end or, um, <clears throat> you know, like one of my you know one of my favorite musicals right now is Kimberly Akimbo which is the mm-hmm. saddest musical I've ever right. seen in my life. And yet you laugh throughout. So musicals are able to do very special things, but what's really I think fun about Spam a Lot and this this version and, and and it happening right now is that it there's no there's no pretense that it is anything but a musical and anything but a musical comedy and and when we launch into um, our crazy dance numbers, long breaks of tap. I mean, at one point, one of the actors turned to me today and said, "There's a lot of tap in this," and I was like. <laughs> Yeah, there really is a lot of tap dancing. When do you get to see a big tap dancing musical these days? 
<clears throat> that's not that's not you know that's not some kind of um musical about i don't know i don't know i mean when do you see a musical with tap dancing it's very rare but there's a lot of it in spamalot um anyway i'm rambling i'm rambling but i i it's like it, it, i remember when this show came out i remember when the when i first saw the movie when i was a kid and it meant so much to me i learned so much about like what was funny and what i thought was funny and we quoted it. I fart in your general direction. You know, like we would quote these hilarious bits. Um, and then when the when the musical came out and I saw the music and I, and I remember hearing the music and I remember seeing the show and I completely fell in love with it. And, I, and, and it's a musical that has been in my rotation of song of musicals I listened to, not just musicals I saw and liked, but like I actually would listen to it. And I have this vivid memory of being in Los Angeles and you know, LA can be a lonely place. And I was out there for something for work or something. And I was alone. My partner was back, back East and I was going through Whole Foods and I was listening to spam a lot. And I started crying in the, in the aisle at Whole Foods at the end of the show. Cause it's just, it's like such a joyous, beautiful thing. Um, nothing sad happens. It's, it's just, it's just pure joy. I mean, there's some people die, but it's funny. Um, so I've, it's been really close to my heart forever. And I'm a guy who weasels my way into something when I love it. And when I found out they were doing this production at the Kennedy Center, I said, do they have a Robin yet? Because I think I could do it. And I, you know, it, and I'd worked at the Kennedy Center before and I thought maybe that maybe they'll have me back. And so I asked and they, they said yes. That's such a lovely lesson, right? I, we were talking about our, a mutual friend, Rodney Hicks, before, and that's one of the things he had a similar story of seeing a project. He's going to be directing Passing Strange in Portland and just cool. sending a text, right? Like it would be so easy not to, but like to really advocate for those special things. And I'm just really yeah. resonating with like being in middle school and discovering, you know, by that time, something that had been around for a couple decades. And then I remember being physically ill. I could not see Clay Aiken in Spanish. <laughs> Uh, so that's a great transition into you're following in the like, chain mail of icons like David Pierce. I got a little cute with some of these questions. I wanted, I wanted good just, just the best for you, Michael uh, and Clay Aiken. So, like targeting Sir Robin and inhabiting the role. Is there something inherently queer about him, and what's your take on him after these sort of iconic folks have put their stamp on it. Yeah, well, I saw Clay Aiken do it. I'm sorry that you missed it, but I got to see him do it. That The first time I saw it, it was Clay. Um, and then I believe I saw David Turner on the tour, mm. um, who is brilliant. And I never got to see David Hyde Pierce. But uh, uh, yeah, there were definitely uh, like some queer geniuses who have come before me in this role. And I don't know, you know, it's inter- it's, a, it's a really interesting question. I, I think the, you know, what Robin wants is to sing and dance. He he joins the Knights of the Round Table because he thinks it's dressing up and dancing. <laughs> um, and then it, it's only after he decides he's going to join that he finds out it's actually about battle. Um, and there might be some singing and dancing too, but really it's fighting and, and um, having to like, you know, be brave. I, I so I don't know that like it's necessarily um a queerness that he that he I think he's probably 
hasn't quite gotten to I, I, I'm not even sure Robin's sexuality has been awakened yet he's been right. <laughs> it's the, you know it's the middle ages and uh, he's lucky to have survived the plague and now he's a knight and uh, he's 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 looking for a, a way to sing and dance and that's that's really his that's really what he wants more than anything and um, I think I think the 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 queer sensibility really comes from this um, this sort of antipathy for fighting and love of dancing, which which I think probably most queer people have. <laughs> <laughs> if I can generalize all of queer queerdom uh, for a second, I concur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in my mind, that like. Slightly curly red bob is sort of the origin story of Robin. And you have a very different hair. And like, shout out to the Instagram post where you're just smoldering at Sir Robin. Because I'm like, this this is like Sir Robin 2.0. It's a small thing, but can you talk about the hair change? Well, you know, I think. I love the I like the purity of a blonde of the of the blonde wig. I like that he he is really a very pure character. Of all the knights, I think he is the, the most the most innocent, the most pure, the most um, sort of genteel. And if to to to, to stereotype hair colors, I guess blonde is sort of <laughs> sort of the, the 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 purest and and uh, um, the, the 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 prettiest. Um, I like being a blonde. I mean, I asked to be a blonde. I, I, I've, I've never, I, I, I've been blonde before, um, but I never had a, such a, such pretty blonde hair as, as I do in this show. I've done, you know, crappy box dye jobs and, um, and I, I did have, I wore a blonde wig in another show that was, that was quite nice, but it wasn't long and flowy like this one. This is like such a pretty long flowy wig and it goes great with the green, you know, my color's green and, um, and nobody else, no, no other, nobody else is blonde um, uh, uh, amongst the knights. Uh, so it, it, it's it's a nice variety. But I don't know if there was a decision made um, between. Of course, now we have Ethan Slater in the show, who is a redhead. So right. you know they don't want. And and I'm pretty sure he wears his own hair at some point. And sometimes Leslie Kritzer is kind of a redhead um, Lady, as yeah. the, as the yeah. Lady of the Lake. So. I think that they wanted to keep us <clears throat> separate, but yeah, to me, Sir Robin had to be blonde, and I was I was happy to take that on. We love to see it. I want to talk about your two, <laughs> not one, but two Lancelots. I was so yeah. thrilled when the announcement came that Taryn Killam and Alex Brightman are going to be splitting it. Can you give us a flavor of how their Lancelots are different? And then I would also like to know who would win in a duel, in your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex did it with us at the Kennedy Center, and he'll be joining us in January as Lancelot. And Taryn um, will be doing it when we open on Broadway. And they are, and you got to see both. I have to say, you have you got to you got to see them both because they're both so funny and they're very different. And yeah. Lancelot's a cool part because originally it was you know most of those parts I think were John Cleese in the movie, and Hank Azaria played the role um, when it was done. On when it was open on Broadway, I remember seeing um, Patrick Hughesinger play it, and uh, Rick Holmes, who was so funny, play it. So they're very, they're but they're very different. You know, Alex is short, and Taryn is tall, um, and and so and there's lines about about um, 
Lancelot being big and strong and hot. And so it's really funny when they both say it for different different reasons. I mean, they're both hot, but you know, like Alex is short, and uh, it's really and, and really really funny. They they both do great voices. I would say that like. Um, and, and I, I, you know, to give Taryn the benefit of the doubt, like we haven't, we, we, he's not finished yet. He's still working on it. Um, but his, his, his Lancelot, and it's not just Lancelot, of course, it's the Knights of Knee and it's, it's Tim right. the Enchanter and he plays a bunch of parts. Um, the French Taunter. He is just like so good at voices. Like you can, you, you, you almost, you almost want to do a version where we animate all the characters because he can sort of do, do anything. And his voices are incredible and he's so funny. And Alex, Alex, you know, I'd say if, if I'm going to compare the two, Alex is Mr. Surprise. He, he you never know what he's going to do. Um, he, he, he will come from a completely different direction than you imagined he would. And they're both, they both keep us on our toes. I mean, they, they both have sort of malleable roles. Uh, things are a little bit different every time. And they're both comic geniuses. They're both improv geniuses too, you know. I mean, Taron Taron is so used to being on his on his toes from his SNL days and sketch comedy days, uh, and Alex Brightman clocked, you know, has clocked thousands of hours on stage doing musical comedy. So you're in good hands, no matter who you see. But I really think you should see them both because they're so different and so funny. They're both so good. You can plan that trip to sort of get that bump around January. Um, right. Come January 7th for, to see Taryn finish and 9th to see Alex start, something like that. That's like the musical theater geek's dream. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a silly question, but I think my money's on Alex in a duel. I think, I think. Oh, the, in a duel? Shorter, well, Alex, Alex will fight. Shorter, you would be, you would feel like you would need to give a bit more. And the element of surprise, now that I know more <laughs> of his attributes, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he'll surprise you. He'll get down there. He'll use his teeth. He'll bite his ankles. You know, it's, <laughs> it's over. Sorry, turn. There's a really lovely podcast that folks don't know. Uh, Brett Goldstein has this podcast called Films to be Buried With. And it is just a gem of, it's so authentic and like kind and compassionate. And we all have these shared movies around, shared memories around different films. And you shared that both Billy Elliot and Arthur are films that have a special place in your heart. And so pairing that with the Holy Grail, is there something about the British sensibility of comedy that really resonates with you or informs the choices you make? Mm, interesting. Well, I think that 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 you know the ways in which not that Billy Elliot's necessarily a comedy, but I love that movie so much. It really like spoke to my soul. But Dudley Moore, you know, like a someone like Dudley Moore, um, anyone from Monty Python, there the there's a real uh, Tim Curry, you know, who was in the original right. Spam a lot. When I think about when I think about com comic actors that I really learned from Tim Curry, Dudley Moore are, are, are at the top of the list. And I think it's an intelligence thing. Not that, not that like, I don't like dumb comedy and not that Monty Python can't be dumb because sometimes it's very dumb, but it really is able to be highbrow and lowbrow at the same time. Right. Um, and as a musical, you know, in a musical can sort of be camp and Tim Curry, you know, Tim Curry in Clue or Tim Curry in Rocky Horror or 
Muppets, you know, Treasure Island, you know, like any of these great turns that he did, he is able to be intelligent, clear. He does. He treats it as if it's Shakespeare, even when it's, you know, camp. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate somebody who is who takes something so silly, so very seriously. And then Dudley Moore, you know, when I think about Arthur, Arthur is such a beautiful portrait of a of a human being, and it's very real. He's he plays he plays a rich drunk, uh, like a like a billionaire drunk, and um, he's adorable and kind of sad because he's a drunk and he's alone, um, but he's super happy and he's he's so, so funny and he falls in love and he's got this mentor guy and it, it's it's like such a heartfelt sweet if you haven't seen that movie you gotta see it it's so so sweet and so funny i quote it all the time um i really think those guys taught me what i thought was funny and and, and i think it has to do with the intelligence and the 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 care that is taken to make something funny there's also the, I, when i was a kid i remember there was a show called Are You Being Served that would play late nights on PBS. And it's about yeah, okay. a British department store. And there was some really funny, really, it really, it's really like, it's really <laughs> over the top and kind of like Faulty Towers. You think about John Cleese and Faulty Towers, but but not a little bit broader than Faulty Towers, even if you can imagine. And um, there was a queer character on the show. Um, and it was from the, I don't know, 80s, maybe 70s. And there was a queer character on the show. And I remember watching it on PBS late at night and thinking it was so funny, thinking that it was, it did remind me of Monty Python and Arthur and Tim Curry, but, um, but not as, not maybe not as quite as high quality, but I loved it. And here was this queer character. And I, I used to sort of like make believe, you know, it was sort of like make believe these characters. These, I think, I think I have a, I think, you know, I sort of innately have, a sensibility of a British com- comic, and and so they've really spoken to me, and uh, and and I, I kind of was able to break, break out of my shell um, watching these these great performances. I oh, I love that. I'm like goosebumpy over here. It's a <laughs> really special thing when you find that oh yeah connection in a character. I am such a huge fan of Eric Idle. And one of my most prized possessions uh, I got as a kid was the Monty Python songbook. And it's so cool. And it's just, you know, it has a lot of the really graphic images that you, you know, remember from the opening of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And Uh you don't realize how many songs, even before Spamalot was a twinkle in Eric Idle's eye, like dozens of songs that the Pythons wrote. Do you have one, like, one of my favorites is the Universe song. Mm. Um, do you have any favorites outside of Oh, what gosh. Well, Bright Side would be my favorite. Uh, you know, Always Look on the Bright Side. Always Look on the Bright Side of Life is just such a... And that they repurposed it for Spamalot, I think, was really so smart. And it, and, and it gives the show such a massive heart. Chris Fitzgerald plays Patsy in our production. And it was originally Michael McGraw who we just lost a few weeks ago, who is a brilliant actor. And it is this sort of sneak attack where this character, who's so, very funny and, and and around, you see him a lot. He plays Patsy, the sort of right-hand man to the king. And then he sings Always Look on the Bright Side of Life and does this beautiful soft shoe. And it's so sweet and so funny. 
And it, it's the heart of the show. It's like the heart, the beating heartbeat of the show. And um, that one's the one for me. I, gosh, I, I, I always think about when I think about Monty Python, I think, of course, about Holy Grail, Life of Brian. And I, I remember flying. I mean, I definitely saw Flying Circus, but the line that I always think about is, and now for something completely different, because it's so, it's such, it's it's just like the perfect comic non sequitur. And it gave them license to do anything. They could just say with all seriousness, and now for something completely different, and and then do anything. And it was like John Cleese in a field with a desk. <laughs> and now for something completely different, and then and then it cuts to whatever, it cuts to fish tank or whatever it is. Right, I so, mean, so clever. I feel like that was how I found the kids that I wanted to hang out with at school. Like if I said something like that, and they knew what I was talking about. Yes, yes. Instead of why is this person doing a random. <laughs> random voice in line right now um, yeah totally i mean that that was like uh, same in middle i think it was middle school when i, I mean it must have been middle school when i first watched yeah. holy grail and you know i remember my friends all we all loved it all us band nerds and theater nerds we yes. all loved holy grail and we could quote it to each other and it was one of those things like have you seen holy grail i mean it was one of those cool things that we, we discovered we it right like i feel right. i felt exactly. like that was like I got this VHS, yes, a VHS yep. from the library. I remember that Holy Grail, and then my young brain exploded. I think it was Life of Brian, the uh, "Every Sperm Is Sacred" song. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I can't believe they're singing that. And then the kids kept coming, coming, and it was somehow still wholesome. Like you know, like the right. Mormons love Monty Python. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah like, yeah. like apparently the Mormons love Holy Grail. They love Monty Python. And it's like, you don't, you don't want to be like, you know, they didn't care much for the church, those guys, but like, but, but it's, uh, it's wholesome. It's funny. It's, it's, you know, it's, I guess it's timeless. You know, it must be timeless. We're still doing these, 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 we're still doing these sketches. I mean, most of the sketches, the really funny sketches in, in Spamalot, are directly lifted from Holy Grail. I mean, it is ver- word for word. You know, I do this scene where it's like, um, look, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow must beat its wings 43 times per second, right? And it like that's directly lifted from the movie, this argument between some random guard in a tower and the king of England about the airspeed velocity of a swallow and whether or not they could migrate a coconut from tropical climate like it's so dumb and and but it's 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 timeless and 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 you can't it's it's also like they're so smart like you can't just say that and get a laugh you have to know the the context like there's a guy in a tower and then a guy on the ground and he says he's the king and the guy doesn't believe him (laughs) and then they have an argument about coconuts why coconuts oh because he's using coconuts to make the sound of a horse because they don't have a horse. Why don't they have a horse? Well, I think they couldn't afford a horse when they made. I don't know why. I know it. It's just like, you, yeah. It's. <laughs> I think that speaks to what you're saying, the, what you're saying earlier, and the, the seriousness yeah. with which this conversation happens. That's right. It's there's an earnestness that. Yeah. Is just wonderful. <laughs> He's like, we've ridden the length and breadth of the land. And I'm like, well, ridden on a horse. You're using <laughs> coconuts. 
<laughs> oh, it's so good. Well, lest lest we spend the rest of the podcast quoting the movie, I would love to hear about this has been an incredible year, like thinking about 12 months ago, Angelica Ross was on Broadway as Roxy Hart in Chicago, followed shortly after by your friend Jinx Monsoon. Oh, uh, I wish I'd seen Jinx. Uh, if y'all are listening to this, you should hop over to uh, Jinx's podcast, Hi Jinx, and listen to your episode because you guys go pretty deep into uh, craft um mm theater craft and and there's some really cool practical advice for actors so check that Hmm. out but this is a long uh preamble to what have you been seeing in broadway there's so many shows that are opening recently and um i'm seeing on your instagram that you're having a grand old time so what what are you and what would you recommend well, I love going to the theater. I did see Chicago recently. I I missed it when Jinx was in it. I'm so bummed, but I know I know that that it was off the wall when Jinx was playing Mama Morton. I can only imagine. But I went to see it recently. Um, our nephew was in town, and we took him to see a bunch of shows. And my friend Jennifer Fouché was playing Mama Morton, but uh, Charlotte D'Amblois is Roxy right now. And oh my God, that is like. She is, if you don't know who Charlotte D'Ambois is, she's like a legend. She's married to Terrence Mann. Her father was a primo ballerino and her brother's a dancer. And is that right? Primo ballerino? Is that what you say when it's a male primo ballerino? Uh, Anyway, uh, ballet dancer, primo. (laughs) And um, Charlotte, yeah, Charlotte has been in like a billion Broadway shows. She was in the most recent revival of A Chorus Line as Cassie. Um, but before that, she was in, I think she was, a, I'm sure she was a Fosse person. She's just done a million things. And she's playing Roxy right now. And she's just, she's just terrific. But I, lo- I love Kimberly Akimbo. I love, um, I I can't wait to see Harmony because I'm a massive Barry Manilow fan. And I love everything. I love that music so, so much. I love the music that he's written for Harmony. And 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 I w- I will say I saw Merrily, which was terrific, and I have subsequently become obsessed with the original cast recording. Mm. It, there's something to the entire story. I, I recommend like getting if you don't know Merrily, or if you want to see the revival, just get into the whole lore of it. Watch the documentary, see the revival, listen to the original cast recording. I feel like the whole picture is very important um because it's like this notorious flop and i'd never i didn't know anything about it all i knew is it was a flop and i knew some of the songs and then i saw the documentary and i was like this is the saddest story i've ever i've ever heard and then i saw the revival and i was like this is terrific how how would this ever not work and then you listen to the original cast recording and it's stunning it's stunning but somehow it didn't work some reason in 1980 or 81 it didn't work and and God, I wonder why. And and anyway, it's fascinating. What else? Pearly Victorious, I saw. So good. It's so, so good. Beautiful. I don't know when um, this podcast is going to come out, but it, I, it runs until January or maybe even February. And it's really wonderful. Leslie Odom Jr. and um, Carrie Young are just incredible in it. Carrie Young is doing things I've never seen before. It's really, really exciting. And if you're in New York in the next few months, my partner, Ryan Spahn, is starring in Marry Me at New York Theater Workshop, which is a really cool play by Hansel Jung, directed by Lee Silverman. What else have I seen? I saw, oh, you know, I saw a cabaret that blew my mind at 54 Below. You know who Leroy Reams is? 
No, tell me. Tell me. Leroy Reams was in the original production of 42nd Street. And he was a Jerry Herman guy. He was in a ton of Jerry Herman shows. He did Lacage forever. He was in Hello, Dolly. I think he's the only man who's ever done it. The only man in equity who's ever played Dolly Levi. I didn't and, know. Yeah. And he was Cornelius with Carol Channing the second time around, I think. And um, I became pals with him just from around. He's like 81 now, 80, 81. And he's doing a, he did a cabaret. He's got to do it again. He did it at 54 Below. And it's called, um, it's called Adults Only. I can't remember. It's something, it's a, it's like naughty stories. He tells naughty stories, but it's way more than that. Just incredible. Like the art of cabaret is so, I, I, I'm not, I can't do that. I can't, I couldn't possibly ever do something like that. It's too, way too terrifying to me to like imagine a whole night of just singing and, and being that. Cause I'm not, I mean, I, you know, like, I mean, I can sing a little bit, but like those people, Nobody wants to listen to me sing all night, but, but, oh my God, Leroy, it, it was, it was really, really beautiful. What else have I seen? There's gotta be more. What have you seen lately? Currently I live in very Northern Wisconsin. And so the last thing <laughs> I saw was the uh, production of Steel Magnolias I directed this spring. But, Ooh, that's fun. Uh, yeah, we found my proudest accomplishment was finding vintage pink wallpaper, pink on pink, wallpaper because that oh my is God. cheaper than getting new wallpaper and that just you know when you make this just that yes. one design choice that elevates everything and a, a win is a win a win is a win That's i want to talk i want to talk about another win of yours but i'm gonna you know use my cute phrasing here so to <laughs> borrow a phrase from mistress isabel brooks you're entering your medieval musical era because not only sir robin but we're going to get to see you opposite sutton freaking foster in what's oh a mattress in january and february please tell me things <laughs> oh my gosh this is like i'm playing prince dauntless in once upon a mattress opposite sutton foster and it was like i i, I couldn't believe it when it when it, you know when my agent called and he said this thing came in for me and and I know Sutton because I was on Younger. I had a part on Younger for several years. And so I had lot, I worked with her a lot. And she's the nicest person in the world. And I've seen her in everything, of course. And she's an incredible musical theater, you know, titan. And I was just like, I, 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 I saw the show, you know, my, my, I think my high school did it or something. I wasn't in it, but they did it like after I left or before I got there. Well, you know, one of those things. So I knew it a little bit. I knew some of the songs. I knew I actually met Mary Rogers um, because she was what? always at Ju- she was always at Juilliard. She was really involved in Juilliard. Right. She was on the board or something like that. So I would see her at Juilliard a lot. And of course, I know the I know the whole like history of like Mary, you know, Mary and Mary, Mary and Steve, and Mary is um, kind of the character in Merrily and all that stuff. And and I and I knew about how Carol Burnett originated that role and then they did it and they did it for television and then they did it again for television and Bernadette was in it and then they did it again for television and Carol played the mom and so anyway I was very excited to hear that this was happening and that they were interested in me and and then I started to look at the I was like I was like yes and then I and then I was like I guess I'll look at it now and I, I looked at the material and I listened to the songs and it's it's terrific it's a, it's just such a sweet adorable very funny piece um, perfect for encores and you know 
Sutton's going to be brilliant and they'll cast someone amazing to play my mother, which will be great and really great for my memoirs <laughs> <laughs> um, whenever I write them. And um, I'm thrilled and feel very lucky. I mean, I can't believe, I got, you know, I got to be honest with you. Like when I was in school, I went to Juilliard for drama and we did Shakespeare and Chekhov and Moliere and stuff. And we had a singing class, but I, I was never proficient at singing. I was never very musical. I've I've sort of tone deaf and have two left feet. Now I can like I I have voice training, so I can I can sing and I have movement training, so I can like learn choreography. But you know I watch people in rehearsal, and I've been in a bunch of musicals now. I go into I go into musical rehe- music rehearsal, and they can find a harmony, and I I just can't. I'm just like I don't hear it. I always have to be on the melody, and if it's if I do have the harmony, I gotta really pound it into my brain. They can pick it up like like it's nothing because they're just musical. I think that there is like I do you know I think you can't learn music. You you can learn music and you can learn dance steps, but you can't learn how to be musical. You can't learn like you know what I mean? Like, I don't think you can learn that innate musicality. Um, well, I think about, like, I'm hooked on Dancing with the Stars right now because Jason Mraz is doing, like, surprisingly well. And Oh, cool. But they talk about that musicality. It's something, I think, in dancing and in singing where it is really an intrinsic thing. And you can yeah. up music theory and, you know, sing against a backing track, but... I totally know. I, I I totally resonate with what you're saying. There are some people who just, they're born yeah. with it. And I think it's a really hard skill to teach. Yeah. And the same with, with like with dance. I mean, I can learn how to, da- I can learn a dance, but like, I don't, I watch them teach dance in, in, in our rehearsal for Spamalot. And I see the dancers pick it up. And I see the other actors who are, you know, more musical than I am, pick it up. And and it takes me a lot of tries and a lot of faking it <laughs> before I get it right. And, you know, whereas like like I can hear the timing of uh, of a piece of comedy in ways that other people might not be able to. Or I can hear I can hear the rhythms of verse text um, in Shakespeare or, or you know, in, in ways. Of it. But like when we did our cabaret at Juilliard, my class at Juilliard did a cabaret. I didn't have a solo. And I'm the only one from my class at Juilliard who's been in a Broadway musical and I'm about to do my second one. So <laughs> what's that about? <laughs> so like now here I am about to do another musical for encores. And I'm, I just like, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to get find, I'm going to get found out any second. Any second they're going to be like, why are we using this guy? <laughs> I will say I did a bit of a deep dive on, on, on some of your stuff. There's a, I did see a cabaret performance of yours. I think with, a group called the Skivvies. Yeah, okay. Because to be fair, to sing I'm Not Getting Married Today with a counterpoint of two singers behind you playing instruments, you did very well, and that is oh, no... thank you. So I'm going to push back <laughs> a little bit. A well, little I'll take bit. it. It's, it's worth your time on YouTube because it is just all of the songs they put to fit in against uh, against that one were... It was just a really delightful little... Wasn't that clever? They did such a clever job. I learned how to sing that song because I was one of the the songs I was like, I could sing that. You know, like there's some song I could sing that. Like like Bud Frump and How to Succeed. I remember seeing How to Succeed when I was a kid in in Dallas on tour. Ralph Macchio came through Dallas with it on tour. And Roger Bart played Bud Frump and it was 
brilliant. And I was like, oh my God, I got to play that part someday. And so I weaseled my way in. I weaseled my way into two productions of How to Succeed Professionally. And I remember there's two moments that I remember. My, my parents are not in the theater at all. They're not in show business. They, don't, they, they love watching TV. They love going to the movies. And they like going to the theater, but they're not, you know, they don't, they don't really know how the sausage is made. And they don't really... You know, they, 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 they sort of don't, they don't like watch things with a critical eye. Although when I was growing up, you know, there's some movies that like I never saw because my parents sort of had good taste, you know, like, 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 you know, like, 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 I'll give you an example, like Hocus Pocus, you know, like. I wondered if you were going to bring up Hocus Pocus. Please continue. Hocus Pocus, <laughs> it is the season, it's ho- it's Halloween. Hocus Pocus is this movie that like everyone in my generation not only like loves and can quote, but they've seen it a million times. And I I, I never saw it. I, ne- I saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. I had never seen it because it had always looked bad to me. And I, I'm sure that my parents were like, Ugh, you know, like, we're not going to watch that. No, don't watch that. Let's watch something else. And it always looked stupid to me. And I always thought it was, I always thought it was like too grown up for it or whatever. And I watched it a couple of years ago for the first time. And I was right. It is <laughs> so bad. I hated it so much. I get why people like it. I I, I mean, I don't know that I get why people like it, but I, I, I appreciate that people like it. I respect it for what it is and, and, and what it has done for people. But, oh my God, I can't with that movie. And I think that my parents, like they did have, their own certain taste level. But uh, but I will say that when I auditioned for Juilliard, I was going to audition for Juilliard kind of on a whim because a teacher had told me, you should audition for this school. And he meant it. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to audition. And I remember my mom being like, Michael, I don't know how we're going to pay for this if you get into this school. Because like they were, they, 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 we were middle class. They saved up enough money for me to go to a college in Texas for four years. And... You know, that was sort of, that was like, that was what they were able to help me with. That was sort of, you know, and it was, they, they were extremely generous and, and worked their asses off for me and my sister. And my mom was like, I don't know how we're going to afford this if you get into this school. And I was like, mom, what are you talking about? I'm not going to get in. That's crazy. I'm just doing this because I want to try. I want to, you know, I want to have done this. I don't want to. And she was like, Michael, I think you might get in. And that was the first time that I'd ever really like, put together that my mom was clever and paying attention when it came to things show busy. Like she did have, she did have like, like she, and she was right. I got in like she, she was right. And then, and then there was another one when I was doing how to succeed and my parents came to see it when I was first in my, my first Broadway show. And I was in a first time in a musical singing and dancing on Broadway. And my dad was like, I couldn't believe it. You can belt. And I was like, Dad, you know what a belt is? You know what belting is? <laughs> it was so so like I, I always sort of give my parents I always sort of give my parents, you know, a hard time of not knowing anything about show business. And they don't really know much about show business, but like, but that was pretty smart. They were they, they my mom my mom knew I was gonna get into Juilliard and my dad knew that I was belting. <laughs> so, you know. Maybe maybe they had something going on. I'm gonna give a little shout out to my mom. It was, it's her birthday today. <gasps> it's my dad's birthday today. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Wild. Happy, happy birthday! What's your mom's name? Marsha. Marsha Woodzik. Yep. Happy birthday, Marsha Woodzik, and happy <laughs> birthday, Paul Yuri. So she's she's like 
she's my biggest fan. And so she's been doing this dramaturgical research on you. And she's just like, he's a pretty big deal. He's a pretty big deal. <laughs> like, so mama, nice. mama, I love you. Uh, <laughs> hey, are you down to talk Shakespeare a little bit? This is my oh, little love Shakespeare to. nugget of the question. You are part of a elite group that has played both Hamlet and Shakespeare himself. Can you tell me a little bit about each of those productions? And if you had to choose one role to play again, which one would you choose? Ooh, good question. Well... Yeah, so Hamlet was something that you know. I mean, I, I I dare any actor to pretend like they don't want to play Hamlet. And as soon as I realized what it was, I wanted to play it. It's it's just a mountain of a role and something that you know we all we all want to our 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 try at. I remember when I was doing it, this actor Daniel Davis. Do you know that actor Daniel Davis? He was the butler and the nanny. Okay. Um, yep, yep. He's a, he, he's a, he's, he's, he was the butler in the nanny. He was brilliant on that, but he's also, a good, he's a genius on stage. He's a brilliant theater actor. And when I, when he found that I was doing Hamlet, he said, Oh, you're giving your Hamlet. And it, it really is like that, that, that way of putting it, giving your Hamlet, like giving your performance. That's, it's really like something you can only attribute to a role like Hamlet or, you know, like one of the great, one of the great parts you're giving your version of that. And you know, uh, I, I would I would never say that like my version. I, I mean, my version was my version, and 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 I had I had an incredible production behind me, expensive, lavish, huge cast, big fights. You know, um, Michael Kahn, who was my teacher at Juilliard, and he ran the Shakespeare Theater in Washington D.C. He directed it. Um, we just had everything we needed. It was, it, it, you know, it, 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 I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity to play Hamlet. And then we got to do it again a year and a half later, same production, and being able to like marinate on the words for another year and a half was just, you know, incredible. And and getting to play that part and getting to have my own spin and and and, and having a, a director that was also a teacher um, who who had done the play like three times. It was his, I think, his third or fourth, I think it was his third production. So he really knew what he was doing and and he really trusted me. And it's interesting, he saw me do two plays that I think, because he was my teacher and he had offered me jobs and I, I we'd never actually worked together. But it's interesting how, you know, he waited until I was like 36 or 37 to ask me to play Hamlet, probably older than any of his other Hamlets. I think Hamlet's supposed to be like 32. And he had seen me do this play called Buyer and Seller, which was a one person play where I played a guy. I basically was like a storyteller. And the story is, you know, I played this actor who got hired to run the street of shops that Barbara Streisand built in her basement in Malibu, which is true. She really did build a shop, a street of shops in her basement. I don't know that anyone works down there, but um, but in this very, very smart play that Jonathan Tolins wrote, she hires someone to work down there and he's, and she's her, she's his only customer. Uh, and it's hysterical and, and wonderful. And in it, you know, he talks to the audience and then he becomes Barbara Streisand and all the other characters that are, you know, that come through his life. And I did the play, I toured the play around the country and we did it at the Shakespeare theater in Washington, DC. And so he came to see me do it in his theater in his big Shakespearean theater. And I think, you know, like a, a Shakespearean soliloquy was meant to be spoken directly to the audience. And of course, Hamlet has a bunch of soliloquies and those are meant to be spoken directly to the audience. A lot of times people do them introspectively, like a monologue. 
where they, they're talking to themselves, but they are meant to be told directly to the audience. And I think when he saw me in Buyer and Seller talking to the audience, that big, that big theater, it gave him the idea that I could do Hamlet. And then a few years later, he saw me in a little play, a drama, where I played this extremely smart character um, whose name was the writer and with with modern language, but 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 very um, intricate language. And he was very, very smart and very, very cutting. And I think it was in and and that that was the night after that performance that he said, let's do Hamlet. And I think it was a combination of two things, the combination of that I could hold an audience's attention, make them laugh, make them listen. And that I could also be really smart and cutting um, with a character. And I don't think I'm a smart person. I think that it takes a dumb person actually to play smart people because we have to go through all, we have to do all the work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I just played, I just did the Da Vinci Code. I played Robert Langdon, another very smart character. I had to learn all that stuff in order to be able to say it like I meant it. And I think that that's, you sort of need that. You know, they say it takes a, a, a smart person to play a dumb person. I think it takes a dumb person to play a smart person because a smart person isn't going to be able to say the smart things in a way that audience members can follow it. And, and you know, that's not to say that all audience members, they, you know, I, I don't, I, they never heard it before, but like they're dumb, meaning they're hearing it for the first time. Anyway, that's all to say that um, my dumbness helped me play smart characters. And, and so I got to do this awesome version of Hamlet and it was so cool. And I got to do it twice and, and it was really, really special. So then I played Shakespeare in this wonderful play called Jane Anger by Talene Monahan, which she wrote with me in mind and with my partner Ryan Spawn in mind. So during the pandemic, if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all in lockdown, everybody kept saying, you guys... Shakespeare wrote King Lear while in quarantine during the Black Plague. So don't sit this out get to get to work, writers. And of course, Talene was like, that's stupid. I can't write King Lear. Leave me alone. But then she went and imagined Shakespeare in quarantine during the Black Plague with writer's block trying to write King Lear. And she imagined that he got stuck in isolation with an idiot apprentice from, you know, the theater. And so that was me and Ryan. And she wrote us this like short play to do in our apartment. And we did it on Zoom. It's probably, you can probably see it. We did it on Zoom for MCC Theater. And it was great. It was really funny and really smart. And she wrote Shakespeare as this sort of like childish man, baby, um, sexist, bombastic kind of a guy. And after we did it, on Zoom for MCC, um, she decided to turn it into a full-length play and add some other characters. And so it was terrific. And we did it off-Broadway. And then we did it at the Shakespeare Theater. So we did it at the same theater where I played Hamlet, actually. And anyway, this is a whole long-ass answer to your question, which is... (laughs) The next podcast. It's when you return, (laughs) but please. When I... If I were to play one of them again, the answer would be both in rep. (laughs) perfect answer i want to honor your time this has been an amazing an amazing interview my last question in passing is if folks don't know about this incredible project that you produced founded pride plays 2020 centering on lgbtqia plus actors uh, a lot of those writers can be 
my little pet project is the non-binary monologues project and so at least two uh at least two of those playwrights are featured there as your d osborne lee and mj kaufman oh um, yeah just a sort of our last a last little thing here i'm gonna link it in the episode description because just the digital playbill itself those interviews are amazing mm. um and so can you just sort of leave us with what excites you about lgbtqia representation on stages i think it's a really fertile time let's say yeah. that that can yeah. be our little parting question here Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, so Pride Plays, which was a festival we did in 2019 and then when we did on Zoom in 2020 and um, one that we are working on reinventing for today's world and and hopefully we'll have news on that soon, uh, is uh, an LGBTQIA theater festival or theater theater um, project that um, centers queerness and that is um, meant for um, queer artists, directors, writers, actors, to represent themselves, and 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 to and to celebrate the pride we have. So it's called Pride Plays because it it is meant to to show the world the way it is and can be, uh, not the way it was or shouldn't be. And I think too often, especially in mainstream entertainment, we focus on the trauma of our marginalized communities and uh, with queer people and, um, uh, and queer stories. So many of the, 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 the ones that, that get to the top of the heap are the ones that focus on coming out or being ostracized or, you know, for a long period of time, AIDS. And these are very important things that, that it is important to, to, to talk about. But I think, um, for for pride plays and for our purposes and sort of for the sort of for the, the 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 way forward for our people now that we have you know so much more equality and so many more rights than we had even you know 20 years ago 10 years ago i think it's important to show show people uh the the, the queer joy and the <clears throat> the the way LGBTQIA people have forged their lives. We lost like a generation to AIDS. We have um, so many, so many people who sort of came out late, who didn't have normal childhoods because they weren't their whole selves. And we want people to see how, how we move forward now. I don't want to tell my coming out story anymore. I don't right. want to talk about that. It's boring. <laughs> it's not that it's not that interesting. And and it doesn't really matter because it's there's no no two coming out stories are the same. Um we are all completely unique people. So I've got one, you've got one, we've all got one. Great. That doesn't <laughs> doesn't mean we need to show them. But pride plays and the other thing about pride plays from a from a sort of like business point of view is there, there are, there's no shortage of queer people in theater. I'm not, we're not trying to like, you know, we're not trying to say, Hey, more queer people in theater, or you're not you know, you're like, obviously there's like queer people are represented in theater. That's a given, but all too often the pile of plays on a desk of a literary manager at a theater company um, will, will there'll, there'll be a stack of queer plays. And, and what we wanted to do with pride plays was say, you can't just lump us all together. 
there are so many different. So like the first year we were like, let's do like four readings. And we ended up doing 19 readings because we realized there's just too many stories to tell. We can't just tell four. We have to tell many stories because as many different kinds of people are contained within the straight community, all of those different kinds of people are contained within the queer community. All socioeconomic groups, races, religions, all kinds of, of, of people are, are queer. And we need to tell all those stories. And so, so that's kind of the, the, that's, and, 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 and we don't want them to feel like they're, they're lumped together. So that's why we always end up doing way more than we, 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 we start out. We think, well, we can do one. We'll just do one. Well, no, we can't just do one because that's only going to, that's only going to represent one letter or one color of the rainbow or one, you know what I mean? And yeah. so, and so it's a pretty cool project. It's a lot. It's a lot to take. It's a, it's, it's a big thing to take on. And um, sometimes it can feel very overwhelming as I'm sure you feel with your project. Cause you think there's so, there's so many, I, I, there's, I, there's so much more to do. There's right. so many, we, we always say when we're um, you know, when we're like trying to make it bigger and bigger and bigger, I always say, we've got a lot of mouths to feed here. There's a lot of us out there. And there's only so many opportunities in mainstream theater. And, and we have an opportunity to be fringe more, you know, we're, we're on the fringe. We can take more risks and we can, and we can give people entry level. We can be, we can be more entry level for people because, you know, it's, 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 and I feel that, you know, I, I think this is sort of for me where it started. I was like, what, there was a point where I was like, why do, why do every job I can't do Jesse Tyler Ferguson does and vice versa? Why, we're nothing alike. I love him. I love him. I mean, he, I'm so glad that he turned down buyer and seller so I could do it, you know, and I'm so glad that he couldn't do Grand Horizons on Broadway. And I was so glad when I couldn't do Log Cabin at Playwrights Horizons, he did it. And we both have played Sir Robin, like, but, but we're actually not very alike at all. And if you really think about it, like, but we're, what we have in common is we both were on TV. And so we get these opportunities and there's, other people who aren't getting these opportunities. And, and I, that, that was sort of a moment where I realized for myself, like, I think I'm getting a lot of opportunities and I know there are people who aren't. And I think it's because I've, I've already, I had that huge break being right. on TV and, and people who don't, it doesn't mean that, you know, it just means that, the, that then people don't know them as much. And, and it, it doesn't mean that they're not as good or, or better. So it was really important to us when we started doing Pride Plays to like bring queer people to the table, give people opportunities that they weren't getting and provide uh, a community, a theater community. I love that. It just makes me think of that Jack Lemon quote of it's your responsibility to send the elevator back down. Uh, oh. that more folks can have those opportunities. It has so been good. a delight speaking oh to you, Michael Leary. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Eggs doing spam a lot and once upon a mattress and uh <laughs> i'm excited to see what pride plays does next oh great thank you and i want to hear all about your festival and and um please stay in touch will do thank you for listening to the theatrical mustang podcast i'm your host and producer woodzik this podcast is distributed by American Theater Magazine, and this episode was edited by Travis Rosemary Kerhard Fischbach. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next month for more interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers. <laughs>